What's the only weekly wrap-up of the top compliance and ethics stories? It is This Week in FCPA with Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, and Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor. Each week, Tom and Jay highlight 10 stories which caught their collective eye, talk about sports and movies, highlight top podcasts, and preview their upcoming events. Join This Week in FCPA each week for a one-stop review of the week's compliance and ethics highlights. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. On this episode of This Week in FCPA, Tom and Jay look at the following stories. Why co-creation is the key to design thinking and compliance. Part three of a five-part series by Karsten Tams. What is going on with ESG in Europe? Vera Sharapanova considers in the FCPA blog. What is social risk? Lawrence Heim and practical ESG. What's the current job market for compliance professionals? Matt Kelly explores in radical compliance. The Serious Fraud Office secures two deferred prosecution agreements. Neil Hodge reports in Compliance Week. Responding to parallel investigations, Nicole Sprison and Catherine Yoon in CCI. Auditing of SPACs, Francine McKenna takes a deep dive into the dig. EU whistleblowing initiative, Keith Taylor explores in Navex Global's Risk and Compliance Matters. The FTC signals more aggressive enforcement in NYU's Compliance and Enforcement blog. The enactment of Purpose Initiative, Wachtell Lipton Lawyers in the Harvard Law Forum on Corporate Governance. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, back again with Mr. Monitors himself, Jay Rosen, for This Week in FCPA, episode 262 for the week ending, July 23rd, 2021, the No Fans Olympics edition. As the Tokyo Olympics stumble out of the gate and there will be no fans at this year's Olympics due to COVID-19 protocols, I have returned to the wilds of the Texas Hill Country. And I'm back with Jay Rosen uh, to look at some of the week's top stories in compliance and ethics, which have caught our eye. So, Jay, um, we begin with a story from, once again, our colleague Carson Tams, who's continuing his fabulous five-part series in LinkedIn on design thinking. And in this episode, Karsten focuses on, uh, I think, the key component of design thinking, which is really co-creation and co-design. And what design thinking does is it puts the design in the hands of your customers. So for chief compliance officers or compliance professionals, that means their employees. And uh, when you can do that, you really have the ability to not only uh, engender new ideas, but also uh, get buy-in. So um, he focuses on that. He focuses on the different ways to to do that. And uh, I'm really looking forward to the continuation of his uh, series. But there's several um, additional benefits. It gets uh, employees to utilize uh, compliance and ethics more fully designs, uh, rather, uh, generates innovative solutions because they reflect the user's needs, contributes to, as I said, the compliance program overall engagement. It also facilitates learning and facilitates and promotes diversity and inclusion 
So uh, it's really a, a great way to think about it. Carson and I are probably going to do a podcast series around this. So uh, it's been pretty exciting for me, and I really think a lot of compliance practitioners have been able to uh, garner uh, some new ideas from his series. So uh, what's up next, Jay? Uh, next, we check in with a friend of the podcast, Vera Cherapanova, who's writing this week in the FCPA blog. And her subject is the EU is expanding ESG requirements and consequently due diligence needs to keep up. Human rights protection is gaining momentum with governments across the EU becoming increasingly serious about addressing human rights violations and broader environmental, social and governance concerns. Earlier this year, Germany took an important step in this direction. Following months of negotiations, the German government finally adopted the so-called Supply Chain Act. From January 2023 onwards, German companies with more than 3,000 employees will, and this number will be reduced to 1,000 employees from 2024, will be required to conduct adequate due diligence concerning human rights and certain environmental risks to protect human rights across their activities and supply chains. The move comes at a time when the e European Commission is working on an EU-wide directive on corporate due diligence and corporate accountability. The regulation will have major implications for companies working in and with the EU. It will set a requirement to identify, address, and remedy the ESG risks across companies, operations, and supply chains. While we wait for the final directive to be adopted last week, the EU Commission and the European External Action Service released new guidelines on due diligence for EU companies to address the risk of forced labor in their operations and supply chains. It's also important to note that some international bodies, including the UN Human Rights Council and the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, have recently advocated a human rights-based approach to corruption, suggesting to view instances of corruption as a violation of human rights. This idea seems promising for two reasons. First, because the human rights monitoring bodies will have the mandate to address corruption, and second, because they will empower the individuals affected by corruption to come forward with their cases as they will see more clearly how it interferes with the enjoyment of basic human rights. All signs are the human rights protection and other ESG's factor-driven issues are in the spotlight for EU regulators and a broader public. Crowdsourcing ethics and compliance risk assessments has always been a good idea, but with today's focus on ESG, it's even more valued. Sharing the data, learnings, and due diligence outcomes becomes key as this is likely to have a mutually reinforcing effect and lead to better visibility into risk. As the OECD's Connecting the Anti-Corruption Human Rights Agendas, a guide for business employers organizations, rightly points out, the data collected in connection to corruption risk assessments can lightly support the analysis of potential red flags in the field of human rights and vice versa. Tom, back to you. So, Jay, um, Lawrence Heim in Practical ESG wrote about social risk. And I thought this was, uh, it's always, always prescient to talk about social risk, but he really uh, laid out a definition, which is anything that can impair a company's social capital. Um, this is uh, different from risks that, in that its primary cause of damage is reputational, where um, uh, a company usually shoots itself in the foot. Um, he 
identified two well-known incidents, United Airlines removal of a passenger from an overbooked flight and the fallout from the former CEO of Papa John's um, protesting, uh, uh, talking about in NFL players protesting the national anthem. Um, and then, of course, uh, that same individual using a racial slur uh, in a business meeting. And um, uh, what he said is uh, you really need to use the knowledge of the past to inform your future plans. Companies can accomplish this by examining social risk events that have impacted their peers uh, and other others in their industry and hopefully be prepared. Conduct scenario planning. Uh, Jonathan Marks uh, talks about this uh, from the audit perspective, interestingly enough, and uh, says you should identify the highest likelihood risk events, but plan for those and be ready to respond. And uh, prepare responses and identify the sources necessary to not only prevent, but also mitigate uh, your highest likelihood of risk. And that sounds suspiciously like a risk assessment. And moving forward uh, from your risk assessment to put in a risk man management strategy to detect, prevent, and remediate. So uh, once again, it's not document, 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 but it's another three words that I talk about a lot, prevent, detect, and remediate. That same sort of uh, process can be used around reputational or social risks as well. So uh, good from uh, article from uh, Lawrence uh, to remind us of this and really for every compliance practitioner, practitioner to think through. What's up next, Jay? Well, it wouldn't be a week in the FCPA if we didn't check in with Matt Kelly, the coolest guy in compliance. Uh, instead of his normally present uh, Into the Weeds of You, Tom, we're going to take a look at a, a blog that Matt wrote for his Matt Radical Compliance blog, and it's an update on the job market. Matt Kelly and recruiter Steve Harrison, a partner and head of compliance recruiting at Concilium Compliance Search, took a look at the compliance job market now that the disruption of the COVID-19 pandemic is receding in the United States. The good news is the job market's going strong. First, the market for compliance professionals has recovered and then some. Harrison described today's scene as the busiest and the best that he's ever seen. Essentially, the typical year's demand for compliance placements, plus all the placements that would have happened in 2020, except for the pandemic putting the Rex order on hold. Now, Matt understands that a recruiter such as Harrison has an incentive to paint a rosy picture, but from a macroeconomic perspective, what he's describing seems to make a lot of sense. We've seen pent-up demand for vacations, flights, meals at restaurants, even home renovation projects or houses that Tom and I have just bought. So why wouldn't we demand? Why wouldn't the, the demand for compliance manpower follow in the same pattern? Consider all the changes businesses have endured the past 18 months: the move to remote work due to COVID, demand for more racial equity sparked by the George Floyd protest, and an epic—excuse <clears throat> me—and an epidemic of ransomware attacks that underline the importance of cybersecurities. Any one of these issues alone would have meant more work for compliance teams. Corporate America has had all of them arrive at once, and businesses have stalled in hiring decisions for most of 2020, and now the U.S. economy is going strong. So it should be no surprise that we're playing a game of catch-up for hiring. How much longer will remote work last? Harrison and Matt also spoke about remote work job postings and what effect remote-only jobs might have on the compliance job market overall.
They were both skeptical that remote work will become an enduring feature of the employment landscape. There's a perception that there's a lot more opportunities for candidates who want remote work than there are actually jobs, Harrison said. On the other hand, companies offering flexible work arrangements where the candidates can work from home several days a week, those are plentiful and probably will be for at least several years to come. What the compliance com community doesn't know yet is one, how will remote work jobs affect salary levels for, professions, for the profession overall? And two, how remote work might affect your ability to move up the career ladder at your company? What's in demand right now? That's easy, privacy and data security expertise or experience building these programs. Global businesses, Harrison said, are looking for both. Again, that makes sense. Privacy laws are proliferating across the US and the world. Businesses need to navigate these laws somehow so anyone who understands how to square business operations with privacy compliance obligations will certainly be in high demand. As to the demand for program building experiences, lots of businesses, Harrison says, are looking for their first ever compliance officer, hence the need for someone who knows how to get started or how to take a weak program and make it better. That tells you something about both the enforcement appetite rising among regulators and around the world and companies' response to that appetite. Good conduct is something regulators expect now, so compliance capability is something compliance, something companies need now as well, which for those of us in the compliance profession is good news. Tom? So Jay, uh, we usually don't have mysteries on this week in FCPA, but we have sort of a mystery this week. And that comes to us from Neil Hodge, uh, reporter at columnist at Compliance Week, who reports that the Sears Fraud Office has secured two PPAs for a total of 3.4 million pounds. Um, now, what's the mystery about it is the companies are unnamed. Uh, I should say that's $3.4 million, not pounds. Uh, but uh, the companies are unnamed and for unknown reasons, although one might uh, speculate that there are ongoing individual investigations and or criminal proceedings. Nevertheless, this is the, the 11th and 12th DPA secured by the Series Fraud Office. Um, some of the uh, 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 facts, or rather some information came out which is that the companies will uh, have to maintain a compliance program. They were charged with uh, either actively participating in or failing to prevent the use of bribes to win contact contracts. They are uh, UK companies. And um, the um, uh, it's really interesting that when the SFO does something like this, it's such a big deal. I suppose here in the United States, the DOJ would issue a press release and we'd be crowing about it on this week in FCPA, so perhaps that's not quite fair. Nevertheless, interesting that we don't know who the companies are. Uh, the DPAs have not been publicly available yet, so I can't uh, digest them for our audience on uh, the FCPA Compliance and Ethics blog, but when they become available, I will. So um, how do you respond to parallel investigations, Jay? Thanks, Tom. Uh, this article comes to us from Corporate Compliance Insights, and it's written by Nicole Sprinson and Catherine Yoon. Responding to parallel investigations, businesses and individuals alike face difficult choices when considering the prospect of multiple federal agency investigations of business practices happening in parallel. In that scenario, 
What are the relevant considerations to determine how to handle this situation? Multi-agency cooperation efforts can go a long way towards obtaining mitigated civil or criminal penalties, but companies, their executives, employees may find that there are significant collateral consequences to affirmatively engaging with all regulators at the same time. Companies should consider these factors in making strategic decisions behind whether to cooperate, with whom, and in what manner. While navigating investigations by multiple regulators is always challenging, recent parallel and multi-agency enforcements provide valuable insight. These cases illustrate that considerations companies should assess when faced with multiple regulators or enforcement agencies knocking at their door. Ultimately, company executives must balance the benefits of a multi-agency resolution against alternative considerations like self-disclosing conduct to regulators that may not currently be aware of it. Multi-factor decision of whether to disclose misconduct to multiple regulators. Pursuant to many industry regulators' rules, failure to cooperate in an internal investigation, including testifying before an investigating agent when requested, could result in losing membership privileges. For some industries like securities, commodities, or government contracting, loss of membership privileges with the industry regulator or regulations means a loss of licensing or potential suspension of debarment as a resulting loss of livelihood. In terms of costs of the strategic decision not to cooperate, the decision not to engage in a parallel cooperation could lead to multiple separate cases and multiple separate resolutions, potentially with accumulating financial costs. First, resolution with one agency may not prevent another regulator from investigating the same or similar conduct at a later date. Second, a federal agency conducting a subsequent investigation of the same conduct may and is likely to refuse to credit a prior forfeiture with another regulator. Recent enforcement actions show the cost of the initial decision of whether to cooperate with authorities, including whether to notify them of potential enforceable misconduct. This can be significant. Cooperation can result in maximum resolution benefits. By contrast, companies that engage in parallel cooperation with civil and criminal regulators can better manage the timing and scope of the investigation and resolution when handled one after another. Further, these businesses typically receive some form of financial credit for parallel cooperation. The DOJ has routinely offered fine reductions to cooperating companies. Here's three examples. In settlements with Teva Pharmaceutical and Panasonic Avionics, the DOJ offered a 20% discount off the low end of the United States sentencing guidelines range. In 2019, Merrill Lynch received cooperation credit when it entered contemporaneous settlements with the DOJ and the CFTC. And last year, Goldman Sachs Group entered multi-agency settlements with both the U.S. and foreign regulators. And the U.S. Goldman settled with the SEC, DOJ, and the Federal Reserve Board. And the company agreed to pay a global settlement of $2.9 billion, and the fraud section credited over $1.6 billion in payments made to other regulators. U.S. government policies prioritize and encourage multi-agency cooperation. As these cases demonstrate, cooperation with multiple regulators can impact the scope and type of resolutions, as well as the extent of financial penalties imposed on a company. Although each federal agency has its own cooperation policy, law enforcement agencies increasingly reward cooperation. 
Businesses and their employees face complex challenges when navigating regulatory and or government regulations, which may be compounded when multiple investigating bodies or agencies are involved. The key to determining the path forward is balancing the company's interest in potentially not engaging with multiple regulators or law enforcement agencies at the same times. Agencies that might not otherwise be aware of the conduct uh, issue against the potential benefits of multi of single multi-regulator or multi-agency resolutions, which can be considerable. Although the decision of whether to engage with multiple regulators to address legal violations always difficult one, particularly where it involves informing an agency of the conduct, the lodestar for the company's decision makers should always be to minimize consequential damage and promote the best interests of the business. Tom, back to you. Before we get to our next story, we're going to take a short break. So, Jay, uh, one of the most ubiquitous terms currently in vogue is, of course, SPACs. And we've talked about some SPACs on this podcast. We're going to talk about them in our next Everything Compliance. And uh, our friend Francine McKenna has taken a look at them from the uh, audit angle, as uh, she's really one of the top audit thought leaders uh, around with her own publication called The Dig, uh, which I would urge everyone to uh, subscribe to. And uh, she's finally uh, published something on SPACs, and here she looks at the auditors uh, involved. And perhaps most interesting, Jay, is the big four are not involved in SPACs largely. Um, the uh, number of audits by the big four of SPACs uh, are as low as one, and um, KPMG has audited seven. So that means there are mid-market companies doing it. Nothing wrong with mid-market uh, companies uh, doing this, but it's a bit unusual that the, the major players are not involved in it. And uh, Francine identifies those major players and then uh, she has, uh, as always, some uh, really juicy quotes. She seems to get quotes uh, in this area as well as anyone and has done so for quite some time. And she really points out the inherent conflicts of interest in SPACs, which is after the investors, uh, initial investors put their money in, the SPAC has 18 months to spend it by acquiring a company and then flipping it out publicly or de-SPACing. Um, I love that word, de-spacking. Uh, and so uh, uh, that's an inherent conflict of interest. But the other thing, Jay, is the pressure you were under. And, and you've been a deal guy a long time. So I know you understand what that means, whether it's your quarterly numbers, whether it's uh, hitting the earnings report or, or just the pressure to close a deal. Well, this 18-month deadline in SPACs is a real deadline and lots of pressure. So if you've gone a year and you haven't closed a deal, you may feel a level of pressure to get something done in six months uh, that is a lot. And that pressure can move to your business advisors, particularly your auditors, who have to certify the numbers of the company you're purchasing. So lots of pressure here, lots of different moving parts. Obviously, uh, it uh, uh, circumvents the IPO process. And uh, when a SPAC uh, after an investment de-SPACs and goes into uh, the public arena as a publicly held company, it immediately has all of the obligations of a publicly held 
held company, SOX 404, internal controls, uh, financial statements, all of that. It's not a, a runway, run up. It's not a 30 days to get it together. It's uh, today, uh, day one. And so that means if the uh, company that's been purchased uh, was private and didn't have those, you're in a world of hurt because the SEC could, could really look askance. All of that's pointing back to the pressure and really how important internal auditors are in the SPAC process. So she's going to uh, write about this, uh, continued, continue to write about it from the internal audit process. Uh, but really, if you have not read uh, The Dig, you're interested in internal audit at all, uh, there's no better writer than uh, 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 Francine. She's been with uh, the Wall Street Journal Market Watch uh, group as a professional journalist. She's a former Big Four auditor. So um, check it out. What's up, Jay? Uh, now we check in with the Navex Global Risk and Compliance Matters blog. We've got a story by Keith Taylor taking a look at the EU Whistleblowers Initiative. With less than six months now to go until December 17th of 2021, the deadline for the EU member states to transpose the Whistleblower Protection Directive, progress is a mixed bag. Just one of the 27 member states, Denmark, has completed the transposition of the directive with the new Whistleblower Protection Act passed on the 24th of June of this year. A number of factors have contributed to this slow pace, both across all member states and in certain individual cases. COVID-19 has obviously had a big impact. Most countries have deferred legislative efforts in many areas in order to focus on the pandemic. Bureaucracy is still a slow progress. Some countries either already have or may soon experience problems in passing legislation during their current legislative periods. To expand or not to expand, perhaps the biggest obstacle to transposition is, however, has been the debate around whether member states should expand the scope of new laws to go beyond the minimum requirements laid out by the directive. Many questions remain over the final scope of national transpositions, whether or not countries will take a verbatim approach applying only the minimum requirements that are laid out in the directive. The issue of anonymous reporting has also been widely debated. Although the directive makes clear that anonymous whistleblowers should be afforded the same level of protection as anyone else, it unfortunately does not include any obligation for organizations to actually respond to and investigate reports from anonymous sources. Other significant areas that are being debated by various member states include measures to protect whistleblowers reporting in the areas of national security and defense, provisions for financial and psychological support for whistleblowers, the introduction of personal liability for those people who retaliate against whistleblowers, and expanding definition of who can be a whistleblower. So what have the Danes done? Now that Denmark has just become the first state to enact the directive, the rest of the EU will no doubt have their eyes on the standards and potential precedents being set when completing their own transpositions. As a result, the new Danish Whistleblower Protection Act covers reporting on breaches of not just EU law, but also national law and infringement of serious nature, including bribery, corruption, sexual harassment. Second, it provides protection for whistleblowers who choose to re report publicly in certain circumstances. Third, does not include protection for reports related to issues of government security, matter, uh, excuse me, matters covered by legal privilege or health information, 
And finally, it does not include any requirements for organizations to respond to or investigate reports. So what happens now? It's quite likely that over the next few months, we'll see a flurry of activity from member states as they push the complete transposition before the deadline. Whether or not all countries will manage to achieve this remains to be seen. Even if not transposed, however, the minimum requirements of the directive will still apply in each member state from December 17th onward. The EU has not given any indication that the deadline will be extended, so organizations should act accordingly and take the opportunity to establish processes that incorporate global best practices, ensuring that they are prepared for whatever happens. Tom? Sure, Jay. So uh, next up, uh, we have an article on the FTC, Federal Trade Commission, and their uh, expansion under the Biden administration and new uh, Commissioner Khan. And coming to us from New York University's uh, compliance and enforcement blog, uh, it really details, the article rather details, the um, expansion of uh, F's FTC powers literally in the first uh, meeting called by uh, uh, Chairman Khan. And they identify a couple of areas that uh, they feel like the FTC is really going to take a look at, maybe three. Tech platforms, healthcare, and pharmaceuticals. Um, and the uh, resolutions passed uh, the entire commission, of course, over the objection of the Republicans, was to expand the investigative powers and scope of what the FTC can do and will be looking at. So they've given subpoena power back to uh, the uh, uh, below the commissioner level. Uh, the Trump administration had restricted subpoenas uh, up to only the commission. So uh, individual uh, civil investigation demands and subpoenas can be sent out without full authorization of the entire commission. Uh, additionally, I think uh, it's pretty clear that under Chairman Khan, there'll be an increase uh, in uh, investigations and enforcement. The authors feel that the adoption of these resolutions signifies an attempt to expand the authority of the FTC and increase the volume and scope of its investigation, particularly for those three areas, tech, healthcare, and pharma. So, um, um, and, in, and perhaps even in uh, hospitals and other healthcare industries, uh, mergers and acquisitions are going to be uh, also scrutinized a lot more closely. And um, it's going to be, uh, I think, a, a big ride for our white-collar defense brethren uh, uh, who practice in these areas, Jay. So back over to you. Thanks, Tom. Uh, with our last article, we're going to check in with the Harvard Law School Forum on Corporate Governance. This uh, article comes to us from a trio of attorneys at Wachtell Lipton, Martin Lipton, William Savitt, and Carmen Liu, and the article is entitled The Enactment of Purpose Initiative. In recent years, the concept of corporate purpose has been invoked as a shorthand to address the corporation's commitment to include stakeholder governance and with its commitments to sustainability, diversity, inclusion, social responsibility, and other ESG issues as part of a corporate strategy that achieves sustainable long-term growth and creates long-term value for the benefit of all stakeholders. Recognizing the importance of corporate purpose in helping guide efforts to build back better following the pandemic, a distinguished group of academics at Oxford University formed the Enactment of Purpose Initiative. This initiative seeks to encourage elemental constituencies of a corporation 
which include directors, management, asset owners, and managers, and other internal and external stakeholders to collaborate, to articulate an actionable principle of purpose, which when applied to special circumstances of each corpora cor corporation, will orient the firm towards mission-driven growth that delivers profit and a social responsibility. Following the 2008 financial crisis, increasing evidence of the irrationality of markets and the growing recognition that our incumbent corporate governance regime is inadequately addressing the systemic risk of climate change, corporate purpose has taken on increasingly greater influence. Confirming this momentum towards stakeholder governance are the Business Roundtable's famous August 2019 Statement of Purpose, the new paradigm issued by the World Economic Forum in 2016, and the 2020 Davis Manifesto. The objective and purpose of a corporation is now been known to conduct a lawful, ethical, profitable, and sustainable business in order to ensure its success and grow its value over long term. This requires consideration of and regular engagement with all stakeholders that are critical to the success, as determined by the corporation and board of directors using business judgment. Implementing the vision of a corporate purpose is consistent with and the authors would argue in many instances required by the fiduciary duties of directors and stewardship obligations of asset managers. The definition of purpose is broad enough to apply general to cor corporations and stakeholders. At the same time, it provides actionable guideposts for corporate and fiduciary conduct. The objective of sustainable profitability recognizes the fundamental purpose of a for-profit corporation, can't say that one, must include value creation. Importantly, the concept of communities broadly comprises society and the environment at large, and the same concerns and constituencies encompassed by ESG investing. To achieve the balancing of interests and choices inherent in stakeholder-centered model and to manage interests and choices, I'm sorry, and to manage the sustainable long-term value creation, directors must exercise independent business judgment as always acting in corporate interests and to advance the corporate purpose. Finally, the requirement of regular engagement acknowledges that responsibility of all stakeholders and most critically investors who have put their capital work across the economy to pursue collectively sustainable long-term growth and corporate profitability. The Enacting Purpose Initiative is linked to the article and it amplifies in many respects our definition of purpose and its further salutary vision of corporate governance that harmonizes the need to manage for profit and the need to manage towards social good. Tom, it's time to talk about podcasts and events. What's on the schedule for this week? So Jay, uh, this week I had a great six-part series with Exeger and on innovation and compliance to look at a truly innovative new approach to third-party and supply chain risk management that Exeger has developed. They call it the TRAGE framework uh, over the past uh, uh, days this week and concluding today on, uh, or, or on Friday rather, I should say July uh, 23rd, we looked at part one, which is transparency, part two, risk mitigation, Part three, assessing risk. Part four, determining mitigations. Part five, evaluating the uplift. And part six, supplier monitoring. I can't really emphasize enough how innovative this framework is, Jay. It's uh, uh, since the development of the five-step life cycle in risk management that I talk about quite a bit, 
Uh, this is really, I think, the next iteration. I'm going to write about it a lot because I think it's so powerful. And every compliance professional should uh, take a look at this and evaluate their own third-party and supply chain risk management in, in the context of the framework. Um, you will appreciate, Jay, that Loki has ended, and Megan Doherty and I concluded our series on Loki for all time, always. Uh, this concludes the, this was the concluding episode of season one, not the series. And Megan and I looked back over the entire series, reviewed it in the context of prior MCU series, WandaVision, and of course, the Winter Soldier and the Falcon, and where the MC multiverse, not, not universe, may be headed. So a lot to digest, and Megan and I had a ton of fun as always. On the Compliance Life this month, we're featuring Asha Palmer. Uh, in episode three, Asha moves from the corporate world into cor com compliance consulting, and she was a little surprised with what she found. So um, check out episode three of this month's The Compliance Life with Asha Palmer, CECO at Conversant. Jay, are you a Gwiki? Oh, yeah. I'm a Gwiki. Are you a Gwiki? I am a Gwiki. What is a Gwiki and why should uh, people care? If you're not one, you should be. You need to join co-hosts Lisa Fine and Mary Shirley for their fan-fave lightning round of listeners' submitted question, questions in this week's episode of Great Women in Compliance, which we abbreviate as hashtag GWIC. Uh, also, I wanted to ask, what is the budget process for a corporate compliance function? Check in with Courtney Nordrum as she lays it all out for you in this episode of Survive and Thrive. You can check out both the video version uh, on YouTube and the regular version. And as always, we link to both of these podcasts and every podcast we talk about on this show. Tom, what's news with the Compliance Handbook 2nd Edition? Compliance Handbook 2nd Edition is out. Uh, some great numbers, so I hope you will uh, check it out. We link to information on it, and of course, I link to it on the LexisNexis um, bookstore page. Uh, LexisNexis, the large, world's largest legal publisher, is starting a compliance uh, subdivision, and I'm their first author, and this is their first compliance book, so check it out. I'm thrilled to have LexisNexis publishing this book. I'm more thrilled that it's out. Uh, it is, uh, in my humble opinion, the single one best one volume book on how to design, create, implement, and enhance a best practices compliance program. So check out the Compliance Handbook, second edition. Uh, Jason Mefford interviewed me uh, about it for his podcast, Jamming with Jason, uh, which went up recently. Scott uh, Moritz, our colleague, interviewed me for it for his podcast, Fraud Each Strategy. And uh, I'll be talking about it in several other venues. So uh, check out the Compliance Handbook, second edition. Jay, you want to take us home? Sure. So if you have any questions, Tom Fox is the voice of compliance. And he can be reached at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. And I, Jay Rosam, am yours truly, Mr. Monitor. You can reach me at the initial J, R-O-S-E-N, at Affiliated Monitors. And we'd like to thank you for joining us for This Week in FCPA Episode 262 for the week ending July 23rd, 2021, the No Fans Olympic Edition. We thank you for spending part of your week or weekend with us, and we look forward to talking to you next week when we take a look at this week and the FCPA. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. 
have any questions, you can reach Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. You can reach me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. I hope you will join Jay and I again next week where we take up some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories, talk about upcoming webinars, and review key podcasts on the Compliance Podcast Network, which premiered for the week. Thanks again for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.